Hello. Let's talk about language. There's a graphic with the bucket and the gears and the speech bubble there. Okay, so we're first we'll talk about receptive language and let's use the analogy of a bucket, okay? I receive your words. So you say something to someone, they catch your words. They've got it. They don't know what to do with it yet, right? We haven't gotten that far, but receptive language means they receive your words. The next thing, let's say it's it's your child. So the next thing that you want your child to do is take that sentence or paragraph or collection of words they just received from you into their brain and you want them to do something with it. You want them to process it. You want them to use the, the system of auditory processing. Um, there's a, a link to a really good um, YouTube animation that is in the module on sensory integration. I think that'll be really useful. You can go back and review that. So it's like the brain is going to start to process this. So I, I, I receive your words. Now you, you want my brain to do something with it. You're probably standing there waiting for me to give you a sentence back, you know. So here's your kid with language processing issues. Um, uh, it could be dyslexia. It could be uh, speech delay. It could be um, executive functioning, it could be working memory, it could be a lot of things, but whatever um, the sensory descent, the, 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 the data flow through the neural pathways is perhaps out of sync. And if it's out of synchronization, then you might be standing there a long time <laughs> waiting for them to process the auditory message you gave them and then come up with a sentence back to you, okay? So let's just imagine that you say um, a paragraph to your child. They're standing there working through it. They're thinking, uh-oh, I need to say something because they expect me to answer their question or they're standing there looking like they want me to do something. And if they have challenges in the auditory processing, if they have vocabulary delays, if their receptive language is out of sync with your expectations, that expressive language message back to you may not be what you expect. It might be delayed. It might be jar garbled up, right? It could be um, just unusable to you. It could not match what your expectations are, perhaps not even match what the other kids are saying. So now you've got issues of self-esteem with the child, right? They know that you're standing there in the classroom waiting for them to say something. Maybe you called them on the carpet. Maybe they're standing in the classroom with all the pairs of eyes looking at them. Well, you know, that kind of pressure is going to take <laughs> and do a real head game on the receptive language, the auditory processing, and is going to mess with the expressive language that you expect to come out. So anyway, that could be what's going on with data out of synchronization. All right. Um, it gives you a kind of an understanding of how the brain is processing your, ex your spoken language. There's also parts of the brain, different sections of the brain that are processing um, written language. So if you call upon a child and you expect uh, an answer to a a paragraph that they've just read, right? You might remember in that um, when we were talking about sensory integration and you looked at that um, uh, file that I had that with the font dancing around on you, which I sure hope it was uh, interactive like that. 
then that's good, that could be another delay in basically expressive language delivery of what you are expecting from your kid. So certainly with my son, we have every learning inefficiency that there is, okay? There's dyscalculia. I got a problem with math, right? There's dyslexia. I got a problem with reading this stuff. I've got a problem with saying something back to you. Maybe I can read the words, but there's a part of my memory that's not able to process what you want. The auditory processing could be out of whack. The vocabulary could be lacking. It could be a lot of reasons why I can't make you happy with the answer, the best that my brain can do. I'm trying to give you what you want there, mom or dad or teacher, uh, peers even, right? And the pressure's on, and so what's going to happen if they don't hold if they, if they don't meet the expectations? They're very self-aware. You know, our kids are very self-aware. So, oh boy, now we got shame, and we have vulnerability, and we have fear, and we have avoidance. So, you might have a sensory-seeking child that's all of a sudden sensory-averse in the classroom because they don't want you to call on them because they already have had a bad experience with this language flow flowchart, your expectations. They know from the previous experiences that they were embarrassed. They were called upon or they couldn't meet expectations. They could not match peers. And so their shame is shutting them down. So that's why even with testing, right, um, assessments, big fancy word we call it. So when my kid was in elementary and we were going through the yard process and he was not delivering what they wanted to have in the gen ed classes. And I would try to explain to them, you know, they're all used to neurotypical kids processing information, giving them expressive language back, giving them answers written down. And so when a kid can't keep up with that pace for all the reasons that could contribute to that, then they think maybe the kid is stupid or lacking or, oh, now we got intellectual delays or, hey, we're going to slap a label of life skills on those kids and they're, they're barely got into kindergarten. So I have a real hang up with the, the language, the categories, the labeling, the bias that the school system has. You know, I threw a number of public hisses about why, how can you possibly call it life skills? for a kid that needs specialized instruction when they have just entered into kindergarten. So this whole PPCD process, right, where you take your kid in before school, you're fully transparent, you're honest with them, they run them through the battery of tests. Your kid doesn't hold up, right? Because for whatever reason, their expressive language, they're answering the questions, they're uh, their output isn't matching what the school expects from a neurotypical kid. So they're going to slap that label on them. And that kid's going to be in a different classroom. And their peers are going to think, hey, this kid's stupid. So I, we just really got to watch our labels, all right? And the kid is going to rise or fall to our expectations. And language and and how we treat kids um you know, if we're just not, it's, it's such a huge thing, right? So that alternate assessment, alternate ways of helping a kid con- feel like he's contributing, he or she is contributing to the classroom. I just beg you to be really flexible in that. So there's another flow chart down there at the bottom. Um, we haven't really talked much about the flow of, of motor function, but let's just say that um, for a quick understanding of it here is that so first, a kiddo is going to start with gross motor, all right? And that's going to be basically like legs. Um, can the child navigate um, or can the baby start to stand up? And then as 
as time flows and the child gets more midline uh, crossover exposure and more muscle strength and core strength, oh, now we're starting to do something with the fingers, which is typically how fine motor is is categorized, right? So fine motor, um, occupational therapy, things the fingers do uh, for for life, for for workplace, um, handling uh, writing tools, scissors, uh, tape, glue, um, shoe tying, for God's sakes. Oh, you know, I'm not sure how you guys, you, you, how your children are, but my kid's 13 and we're still working on tying knots. And, and not the complicated shoe tying knots, but the um, uh, just a belt tie that we have in Taekwondo or just tying a simple, you know, not even a fancy square knot, just something where it doesn't fall apart. Okay, so we it, it basically uh, back to the beginning of the flow chart. So gross motor starts right the the, the legs. This is an overgeneralization, but just to give you the the flow of um, motor function. So then, as as we have enough midline crossover now, and 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 muscle strength and core strength and development, um, they'll move into being able to do something with their fingers. Now, my kid, even as he's thirteen, has long skinny fingers, but they just don't grip the same way. I was trying to pour some goldfish, you know, those crackers into his hand the other night. We were sitting on the couch watching a movie and it was like he opened his hand and it was like I had to hold his hand, mold his hand. He couldn't even model me making a cup in my hand so I could pour the goldfish and not have them fall through the cracks of the fingers and onto the couch. And then I got crumbs and salty oil everywhere, right? So... In the old days, I used to uh, draw little faces on his fingertips, to, uh, and then we would name them by his friends. So one fingertip was, you know, the kids that he knew or kids in the family, just to try to give him an idea. And then we would do little puppet, like like finger puppet exercises for him to realize that he did have fingertips and he did have fine motor function in those fingers where even now at age 13, it's like he's got one long stick of a finger. It's not so much that he understands how to, he can pick things up, but it's still a struggle. We're working on everything we can for methylation. We're working on everything we can for quantum reflex integration, QRI, cold lasers. We're trying to work on everything for him to realize that those things at the end of his his uh, fingers are useful. He's got like connections. He can he's got joints on those fingers, dude. You can bend them, okay. And then the uh, the strength of the uh, of the thumb. To we can do buttons. We are working on snaps. We can do zippers, okay. But we're still basically in elastic waist or something that's kind of a. Uh, a fly front, but enough of elastic waist where he can still pull it up over his hips. Now this, even that type of a fine motor function and teaching a kid how to use a bathroom, a public bathroom. So here's a sad story. I've had, um, I've been in in workshops where they said, you know, you got to watch how you teach your boy how to use the public bathroom if you're a female, because as a child gets older, like, so let's say that my kid is in seventh grade, which he is now. If he uses the public bathroom at school, is he is he matching what the other boys do, which is basically 
kind of pull it down, stick it out, pee, shake it off, shove it back in? Or is he dropping his, his whole pants? If he's going by how a woman teaches a child in the very early stages, well, then you're dropping your pants, which is not going to be a good thing when they get to be a man in a public bathroom because there they stand in front of the urinal uh, and just whip it out and pee and it's over. So you, it sets them up to be a target. So back to fine motor and the importance of the zipper and the fly front, right? And the snaps and the, 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 uh, the, the ability to manipulate all that stuff. So the point there is that if my kid is still wearing the elastic waist pants in junior high school, then how does he pee in public at school? Does he just, does he keep his buttocks, his, his, the bum covered, which please, I hope he does. And I practice at home with him and I watch him when he pees. He doesn't want me in the bathroom anymore, but in the earlier days, I would just like, oh, please let him keep his, the backside covered and just the barest amount, the least amount, the front comes out. Um, so consider that, right? When you're teaching, if you're a female teaching your your boy how to pee in the public uh, urinals, <laughs> long-term unintended consequences, okay? Um, all right, so then the third piece of that motor function is oral motor. So the idea is that, um, let's say a child is trying to develop gross motor and cannot do a good two-footed launch at, at the developmental milestone that they should, according to the AMA, which again is my kid. And there'll be some pictures later on of uh, some exercises that we had to do in the home with the oversight of our occupational therapist because John could not do a two-footed launch. So we had to practice. And I had to set it up to find his motivation. And I used his need to stem. I had him stand up on one of those balls like, you know, they have at the... the um, workout place and have him jump on it. I'd hold his, I'd balance his hands. He would talk to me uh, and he would count to 20, but he had to do a good two-footed launch. Now, how did I get him to want to do that? Well, his, his stem of choice long ago was opening and shutting cabinets, doors, bathroom doors, which again might be kind of cute when you're teeny tiny, but is not so good when you're a teenager, 20-something. Um, but it did, it did, it did keep him from running out of the stores. So I guess that's, and I got lots of stories on that as time goes by, examples. But so um, uh, he would, I would get him up on the, uh, I would say, hey, John, do you want to open that door? And of course he would want to open a door, any door. That was a major number one stem. So I would say, okay, get up on this ball. I'm going to, I'm going to steady you with my fingers. You're going to jump with both feet count to 20. So we would have the, we would work on our social skills, our face-to-face, -face, our counting, our um, expressive language, even the auditory processing. And then he would jump. So he had the physical piece, gross motor. And then eventually we would hope that once he had a two-footed launch, the point there is that a kid's not going to have good fine motor until he has gross motor totally conquered. It's not an absolute transition, right? You see there the, that it's kind of some commingling at the transition point. But the point there from the um, OT from Rosemary Slade was that, you know, if I wanted John to be able to write with a pencil and a decent grip and then eventually move on to oral motor and say sentences, but he was physically stuck in that gross motor developmental st stage of 
I'm too afraid to lift both feet off the ground at the same time because from a proprioceptive and vestibular standpoint with introception, I'm not sure where I'm going to fly off to or where that floor is going to go if I'll never come back down again. So we worked on it and finally he got a good two-footed mm-hmm. launch. So then we could move on to motor, fine motor, which we're still struggling with at, you know, 13 years old. Then the oral motor will come as time goes by. And that's that trigeminal that we talked about back in sensory integration. The trigeminal, the uh, nervous system, how uh, the tongue works. Um, If you have speech, even um, uh, um, the, the processing of the sensory integration. So sometimes it's a physical thing and sometimes it's a neural pathway thing right so is the tongue working from a uh, like the SLPs and the OTs they actually have different uh, perspectives and I think the SLP is more um, uh, uh, well I shouldn't say because uh, that's a guess but anyway SLPs and OTs have different approaches so I will leave that to your further research um, oral motor will not come unless we get a good two-footed launch so I'll be doing something more on gross motor later on. It just is a flow chart that kind of flows along with the idea of the receptive to the auditory processing to the expressive language. So at this point, I just wanted to, to give some vocabulary. And then as you work with your kiddo, think about the fact that um, do they understand what you're saying? They got it in their bucket. Can they do what you say? And that even fits into executive functioning. Motor planning which is kind of what we were talking about down there with gross motor to fine motor. If they don't know how to plan their body, if they don't know how to do a two-footed launch, and I'm asking him to write script calligraphy, or I'm asking him to say great sentences, from a pure childhood development standpoint, I'm asking for what can't be done yet because we're missing the precursor. We're missing the foundation. So go back and let that kid jump and run and play outside, cross midline, right? The three midlines that we talked about. Um, and the other, another really important flow chart in that uh, expressive language auditory processing and receptive language, there's motor function in all of that too. So just, we have to meet our kids where they are. This is a lot of vocabulary. We'll do a lot more examples later on. I've got a bazillion photographs I've taken of John over the years, and I use them in the workshops as examples. Um, uh, And that will probably fit with something that you've been doing with your kiddos. This is mostly vocabulary. Forgive me if I've talked too fast. it's like the it's like the roadmap. It's like the big blueprint. It's not the nuances of each individual child, but it's really more um, generalizations, right? And just think about how your kid is a unique version of of these two different flowcharts. Well, thanks for your time. Um, everything is about learning and and the integration of the data coming in and neural pathways and being consistent and having your foundation and then building on that, um, stretching the child, but still letting them have the satisfaction of, of mastery, right? So um, thanks for your time again, and we'll uh, move on to other topics. Uh, looking forward to it. There's just so much to, do, to think about and to uses you take theory and you work with your kid all right so it's important to understand the big picture of childhood development and at the same time your child is a different critter every day and we sure hope that it continues to go in the right direction all right thanks for your time